You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? We sure have. That's why we launched the Bites of Health Podcast. Every morning, we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, streaming now. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Calm Cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long. Calm Cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds like ocean waves and crackling fires. All of our episodes are designed to help you relax and to fall asleep fast. Calm Cove is brought to you by the team behind Sleep Cove, the sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis, meditation, and stories. So if you want to listen to a beautiful soundscape tonight, search for Calm Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night. Hello, I'm Teresa McKee, your host for A Mindful Moment. Thank you for joining me as we explore ways to increase mindfulness in our day-to-day experiences. Mindfulness is presence, awareness. It's paying attention to what's happening within us and around us. Mindfulness increases our emotional, physical, and mental well-being. It can also enhance our focus and productivity And there are many health benefits from practicing mindfulness and meditation, from lowering blood pressure to increased longevity. Perhaps most importantly in today's chaotic world, mindfulness strengthens our ability to be more compassionate to ourselves as well as others. Paul Fessler is the founder of ZBA Associates, an executive development and leadership consulting company with a client roster that includes Google, Twitter, Genentech, Kaiser Permanente, and the Global Fund for Women. He has been featured in numerous publications, including Entrepreneur, The New York Times, Huffington Post, and Mindful. A well-known author, his newest book, Finding Clarity, How Compassionate Accountability Builds Vibrant Relationships, Thriving Workplaces, and Meaningful Lives, is available now. Welcome, Mark. It is such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks, Teresa. Pleasure to be here. I am really looking forward to this. Um, Starting from when I first started reading your books, I always found your story fascinating to go kind of from a, well, not kind of, actually from a Zen Buddhist monastery to Google and more in the business world. And I think it's just an unusual path, but I I think it's a great combination. So could you tell us a little bit about your inspiration for writing Finding Clarity? Well, Finding Clarity was um, inspired by some work that I was doing with a, a socially responsible bank that I found myself um, doing uh, a lot of one-on-one coaching with their leaders and then getting deeper and deeper into working on company culture. And somehow... Uh, I, I had put forward this idea of um, 
uh, putting together accountability with compassion. And they completely embraced it as this is exactly the kind of culture that they wanted. And I think it's a, um, I think pretty much any organization and, and to some degree in, in all our, you know, relationships, whether it's with families or, uh, or in our work lives, this, um, uh, this concept of accountability, which is kind of alignment and truth telling and searching for facts in our relationships combined with, uh, care and trust and even love and compassion and, and the book emerged out of, out of that as well as I'd say out of the rest of my life, uh, uh, as, um, kind of looking at this, uh, apparent contradiction or I'm a big fan of paradox and contradiction, uh, which I think in some way describes our human, our human lives. And, um, yeah, that's how this book was, uh, emerged. Very interesting. So you do write about the importance of finding clarity in our personal and professional lives. So what are some of the common obstacles that you think prevent people from achieving clarity and how, I don't, do you have any advice for how they can overcome them? Yeah. yeah. Well, I think, um, as one of my, you know, I, I spent many, many years, uh, teaching mindfulness, emotional intelligence and leadership at Google's headquarters. And I became friends with a, uh, a Google scientist who was fond of saying that we humans are descendants of the nervous apes, that, that our, our evolutionary ancestors who were chill and cool, they all got killed. Uh, it was the ones who were really good at scanning for threats and looking for what could go wrong, um, both externally in the environment, but also internally, this, this um, well-developed inner judge and inner critic that we all seem to have. So I think, I think of this as the, uh, the base point for why it's hard to see clearly because we, we are, you know, we've evolved. We have the brains of people who uh, see negative things more strongly than positive things. We're scanning for threats. We are wired to survive. Uh, we're not wired to see clearly necessarily, or we're not wired to be happy or satisfied, we're wired to look for what can go wrong. Uh, and, and I think we're also, um, very sensitive creatures and it's, it's, um, we tend to avoid conflict. We tend to overreact or underreact when things get challenging or stressful. So I think this is kind of the, the, uh, the real basis of why clarity um, is hard. It's hard. It's also, we are amazing storytellers, right? We, we fill in the blanks so easily with stories about who we are and aren't and what's missing or what's not missing. Um, I was talking to someone the other day who was telling me that, um, you know, a party he went to was really noisy and therefore he felt betrayed. Didn't they realize that he has a hard time with noise? And I'm like, no, they probably just didn't know they're having a good time. What do you mean you felt betrayed? Like, that's, that's a really interesting story that you're creating there. So this is some of the, I think, the challenges of finding clarity. And I think it's needed more now maybe than ever. And it is a hard thing for people to do because at, 
feels like operating from a fear base is just so widespread right now. And then, of course, we're trying to protect ourselves. So, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and we can laugh at, you know, the person who felt betrayed because people were speaking loudly at parties. But really, we do that all the time, right? I mean, someone cuts you off while you're driving. You're betrayed. Like, no, they probably just didn't see you. (laughs) Well, the book focuses, as you mentioned, on compassionate accountability. So maybe we should start there. Could you explain to our listeners what that is and why it's so important? What I realized in the writing of this book is that the primary practice is the practice of accountability. No, and, and partly, partly the book isn't called compassionate accountability because people don't like accountability. Accountability does have a negative connotation. It seems kind of cruel or cold or, you know, and we think of lack of accountability or we think of those, those dreaded performance reviews at work. But I think accountability is just something, you know, again, it's around, uh, it is about being clear about what does success look like? Uh, are we, are we tracking toward that vision of what it is we're trying to achieve? As well as are we, are we accountable for how we want to be working together? What, what kind of relationships do we want? What kind of culture do we want here? So I actually like, I, I sometimes find myself substituting the word alignment for accountability. Because a big part of accountability is this alignment with our values, alignment with our vision, and having two people or multiple people aligned with what, what success uh, looks like. And the compassion piece is to be able to do that with care, with trust, with a sense of, you know, compassion is, is by definition, it is you know, feeling the pain of others and wanting to help, wanting to heal. So to me, these two, uh, these two practices, these two concepts of compassion and accountability, they, there's tension between them, uh, but they go together really, really well. It's really interesting. Um, I just recently had a conversation with a manager who was talking about how much she hates doing performance appraisals. And so we had this conversation where I asked, well, are you looking at it from the perspective that you're trying to support this person and help them grow? Or are you looking at it as punitive? Because I think, again, it's that accountability factor that people misunderstand. It's really ownership, right? It's saying I'm responsible for me and I'm accountable for what I do. But there's really nothing that needs to be negative in it. But I, I agree with you. So putting that compassion in that it is about caring for people. It is about trying to support people. It is about supporting ourselves and our integrity and our values. I think that that's a wonderful message because I, I think it's misunderstood. Yeah, I mean, I think um, ideally people should look forward to the opportunity of let's have a conversation. Let's have an alignment conversation. Uh, you know, what's working well? What could be better? How are we feeling about things? How could we make this a... Uh, a more effective and joyful relationship. Now, partly it means a lot of this is 
anytime there is any kind of lack of alignment, how, how do we work with that? How can we find skillful and effective words to have those conversations? Those are the, those are, those are the hard ones. Um, and, and it means there needs to be this ongoing sense, I think, of building connection and trust to be able to have those, you know, uh, in the workplace, cynicism is easy. It's really easy. I think of cynicism as the default. Uh, building trust, building healthy relationships takes work, takes ongoing, ongoing work. Yeah, absolutely. In these, uh, shall we say, challenging times, I think mindful leadership is really critical to helping us progress and maybe improve conditions. But I'm wondering, what, what do you think mindful leadership looks like in the workplace? It's funny how um, I think, you know, my, the word mindful and mindful leadership were, were all the rage maybe 10, 10, 15 years ago. And now it's like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but to me, um, mindfulness is this really deep, wide practice of one's way of being, one's view of how, how you actually uh live in your own body, what your presence, what your presence is, what your approach is, um, how you react in difficult situations. Are you someone who is, you know, are you attacking or fleeing? Uh, so again, mindfulness, I think, is this, uh, be, and being able to be less ego driven, you know, and more, more an ability to see from a variety of perspectives. And all these, I think, are key to leadership, right? That, that, uh, working skillfully together means to have a, a, a really well developed uh, sense of self awareness, uh, to not be, to have a, some awareness and skills of how we work with our difficult emotions. Um, you know, it, at the, when the, the work that I did, for many years uh, at Google was what we called mindfulness-based emotional intelligence. So I think everyone gets the, the importance and value of emotional intelligence in the workplace. But to weave in, the, I think, the somatic piece, the body piece, the way of being piece, I think these are really powerful. And not just at work. You know, I think... Uh, there's a need, I think, for mindfulness-based emotional intelligence in all our relationships, especially with our partners, our children, our parents. Uh, yeah, that re relationships uh, are complicated. They are. We are complicated beings, we humans. Yes, very much so. Um, in the book, you cover several areas that I work with leaders and teams on every week including addressing breakdowns in the workplace, how avoiding conflicts increases problems, and the power of truth-telling to resolve conflicts. So can you talk about these all-too-common problems we encounter at work and, and in our personal lives, and maybe a first step each of us can take individually to contribute to more harmony? Yeah. Well, you know, the first, um, the first chapter of my book uh, is uh, Be Curious, Not Furious. Uh, this would solve, this by itself would solve a lot of these problems that you're referring to. These, you know, there are going to be breakdowns, mistakes, failures, and people are going to get upset. And 
I think it's just such, you know, I think we should all have it sewn into our clothing. Be curious, be curious, not furious. And again, these things are easy to say, but it's actually kind of a radical, profound practice to, I mean, imagine, imagine any time that you're feeling frustrated or angry or uh, annoyed. And instead of reacting and responding, instead of going right to blame or story that you start, start with being curious about your own feelings. What, what am I feeling? What assumptions am I making? What is this? What pattern, what pattern might I have that do I have some responsibility here? So this is kind of the ultimate way of holding, start with holding ourselves um, accountable. And then of course, you know, uh, People do, people in our workplaces, um, maybe, uh, do things that do need us to, it's, it's, it may not, we may have a role in it, but we might not at all. You know, uh, the person may have just failed at something or not been so truthful about something or upfront about something. And there's a need, there's a need to have, uh, difficult conversations. This is a whole, I think, core skill. Uh, not avoiding conflict and having the skills and ability to have effective, difficult conversations. And, and I think these, you know, there's, there's various models for how to, how to do this. Um, but in some way it starts, I think, with our own curiosity, um, knowing our own feelings and being able to make clear requests of, of other people. Yeah, I agree with that. I actually use Dr. Rosenberg's compassionate communication model. And, but it's amazing to me how much of my time is spent just sitting with two people who can't get along at work. And it's, you know, because once you've studied it enough and you understand, you're kind of creating a lot of your own suffering with this thing instead of just kind of open and able to talk about it. But people, many people just don't feel safe doing it or they don't have the skill set or the words to use. So yeah. I agree with that. Yeah. Um, Kind of along those lines, another common theme I see across a variety of organizations is complaints about difficult people, whether it's a coworker or their spouse. Can you share how we can maybe shift our thinking about difficult people and behaviors, and also how we can recognize if we might actually be a difficult person? Right, right. No, I love when I'm asked that when I'm leading a workshop in a room of people or on a, a Zoom call these days. And someone asks me about working with difficult people. I'm always wondering, you know, are you one of those difficult people? Because in truth, we all are difficult people to someone. I mean, even when I was CEO of my, my last company, we used to do a, you know, once or twice a year, an anonymous survey. And in that survey were many questions about how people felt about working with me. And, um, as hard as it might, it was hard to believe that not everyone loved me or, or not everyone thought that I was, uh, a, you know, a great leader. Uh, what I noticed, you know, there were always, um, always some people on my team who found that I made decisions too quickly and was not inclusive enough. And then there were also people on my team who found that I moved too slowly and, and asked too many people for their, for their input. And so it was so interesting seeing how I, those people would experiencing, experience me as difficult 
through their own particular lenses. So I think this is the starting point is to, uh, to bring awareness and curiosity to what lens are we seeing others through and what lens are they seeing us through? Uh, and, and unpacking, unpacking the stories. You know, the, uh, the, the second chapter of my book is called Drop the Story or maybe more be aware of the story. Don't be fooled by the story. Right. So we humans go so quickly from any time that we are hurt or we feel threatened. It's, it's almost, um, you know, lightning speed, uh, without being conscious of it, we go right to blame. We go right to story. So this is um, having the ability to create just a little bit of space and slow it down and not be caught by that story. This is, I think, the, the, the beginning of having some uh, skill and competency in working with these so-called difficult people. Now, having said that, of course, there are going to be there are people who are toxic. There are people who are just downright stress makers. I find that these are relatively rare. Um, so we're talking more about the, I think, the day-to-day ordinary difficult people, which are everywhere, including us. Actually, in my podcast this week, I mentioned that many of my clients seem to be exhausted. And in the book, you quote David White saying, the antidote to exhaustion isn't rest. The antidote to exhaustion is wholeheartedness. Mm-hmm. What can we do to move toward more wholeheartedness? Yeah, I was thinking a lot about the power of um, the power of commitment, the power of being committed to our own growth, being committed to building our own character. And this, to me, is a I think a really good. I think of it as the kind of an Aikido move or a reframing. Imagine, imagine seeing that everything in your life is an opportunity to grow and learn and, and, and develop even the hard stuff, even the difficult people, even the challenges and stresses, or maybe especially those challenges and stresses. Uh, you know, this is, this is one of the things that I particularly love about you know, contemplative practice or, or, uh, Zen practice is particularly, uh, adept, uh, emphasizes that everything we do is an opportunity to learn and practice and grow. And, and again, it's easy to say that, but I think this is what David White was referring to about the, uh, seeing wholeheartedness as a practice. So it starts, I think, with noticing where am I divided? Where am I not wholehearted? And what is that about? And how can I shift into a greater sense of alignment, commitment, and wholeheartedness in my key relationships? In my work, of course, is a, is a big one. Um, you know, it's interesting when I talk to people who are feeling exhausted at work or feeling unhappy just starting with what what do i need to do to change that how how could i bring more well-being into my work life uh what actions can i take what conversations do i need to have that are keeping me feeling somehow not uh, not inspired or not valued um so 
yeah, I think of wholeheartedness as being an important practice and seeing it as a practice. It's funny. I was first introduced to David White when I was studying spiritual psychology. And the, the term that everyone used in those courses was schools in session. So every time something challenging or upsetting happened, that we just, it became a habit to say, oh, school's in session. This is my opportunity to learn. But a lot of people, you know, think, well, as long as I stay kind of, I don't know, small or quiet or controlled, then I'll, it'll be smoother. And in fact, that wholehearted living, it, it does make you maybe sometimes vulnerable, but that's really, I don't know, experience the richness of life, you know, with the ups and downs and look at it from that perspective of, oh, this is an opportunity to learn. So beautiful practice. But it is, I agree with you. It's a practice. You have to really kind of shift your mindset. So, And there's, as you say, there's also, a, there's an aspect of vulnerability to being like, if you're all in, in some way, we're often, you know, looking around at all of our options. Oh, you know, I don't like this job. I'm looking to look for other jobs. And then I'm, I'm not really going to be here until I find, you know, like, man, that uh, not a very healthy way to be living. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's more exhausting. Yeah. Well, I think it's an excellent book. It's full of practical information. There's a wide array of anecdotes, examples that you added into the uh, end of the book for people to use. And perhaps most importantly, it's a clear vision that I really wish everyone would aspire to. So can you share with our listeners where they can find more information about your programs? You've got a podcast and then, of course, this book, Finding Clarity. Yeah, my podcast is called Zen Bones and my, my website is marklesser.net, M-A-R-C-L-E-S-S-E-R.net. Lots of uh, writing and guided meditations and information there. Um, so please, please come visit. I just want to thank you. It's been such a pleasure speaking with you today, and I really appreciate your insight. Thank you very much for having me. Until next time, I encourage you to meditate daily and be mindful in all of your everyday activities. Simply bring your full awareness to the present moment to build your mindfulness skills, paying attention to every detail of what you're doing, from washing dishes to work tasks to taking a walk. Your mind will wander, and that's normal. Each time you notice it has wandered, that's mindfulness. Consider how wonderful the world could be if everyone was mindful. You can help make that happen. It all starts with a mindful moment. This podcast is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to other great shows like the Daily Meditation Podcast, Everything Everywhere, and Movie Therapy. We deeply appreciate your support at patreon.com slash a mindful moment. Please be sure to subscribe to A Mindful Moment and follow us on Instagram at A Mindful Moment Podcast. Visit our website, amindfulmoment.com, to access podcasts, scripts, and book recommendations. A Mindful Moment is written and hosted by Teresa McKee and or Melissa Sims. The Spanish version is translated and hosted by Paola Tile. Intro music, Retreat by Jason Farnham. Outro music, Morning Stroll by Josh Kirsch, MediaWrite Productions. Thank you for tuning in. This podcast is produced by Work to Live Productions.